Hello, everyone, and welcome to NEPA Sports Stories. My name is Matt Buffano, and I am the host of this podcast. This is episode 21, and my guest today is Jason Turdeman, an Olympic athlete from Berwick in the sport of luge. Having just turned 32, Jason is as decorated an athlete as Northeast Pennsylvania has produced in recent memory. He represented the United States at the Olympic Games in 2014 and 2018 on top of numerous World Cups and other world-class events. I'm reading a New York Times article from 2018 that quoted Jason, and the headline of the article is, quote, What is luge? It's like sledding at 90 miles per hour, unquote. So what is it that motivates a kid from Berwick to take up this unorthodox sport and then thrive at it? What kind of memories has it generated for Jason, and where does he go from here? We talked about all of that, and with no further ado, here is my interview with Jason Turdeman. All right, two-time Olympian, Jason Turdeman, thanks for joining me here on NEPA Sports Stories. Hey, it's my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. All right, so we are recording this episode uh, Wednesday, December 16th, 2020, and we are getting more than an inch of snow an hour right now in the scranton Wilkes-Barre area. Where are you joining us from, and where, what are the conditions like there? Uh, I'm in Lake Placid, New York. It's been my home training area for the last 13 years full-time. Unfortunately, we are not getting any of the snowfall you guys are getting down there, uh, but we are getting single-digit temperature days. Uh, and we won't see above freezing for the next four or five. So uh, we're getting all the cold. You guys are getting all the snow. It's a little unfair, but it is what it is. What are ideal conditions for luge? Uh, pretty much what we're, what we're experiencing right now, cold nights, um, dry temperature. It does get a little like humid here during the day, which isn't ideal for luge. But the colder the temperature, the harder the ice, the harder the ice, the faster we can go. And we're just a bunch of adrenaline junkies looking for that fix. Yes, and the speeds that you could reach, correct me if I'm wrong, 90 miles an hour, something like that on the luge? Yeah, yeah. the uh, highest recorded speed in the Guinness Book of World Records is 96. That was back in 2002 uh, the track out in Salt Lake City, Utah for the 2002 Olympic Games. But there's been training sessions where guys have gone a little bit faster than that. I think the highest that we have seen is 96.9 in training, and that is held by an Austrian slider uh, who is retired and has moved on from the sport. To let the listeners know exactly what luge is, this is the inevitable question that you get probably in everyday conversations, interviews, everything. Uh, And I heard you describe it recently as being akin to riding a roller coaster without being able to see. And that Uh, sounds extreme and it is an extreme winter sport. So, you know, how does a kid from Berwick, Pennsylvania, get involved in a sport like this? Uh, Well, myself and about 90% of my Olympic teammates have all gotten involved in the same way. In the summertime, USA Luge sends a U-Haul and a wheeled ramp um, around the country. Obviously, this year with COVID, things are a little different, but they take sleds that are outfitted with rollerblade wheels instead of the the steel runners that we use on ice. And they go to, to local towns, major cities usually, but I've been lucky enough to bring this program to Berwick. It's called the White Castle Slider Search. And uh, what we do is we find a, a nice paved hill about quarter to half a mile long. We block it off. We set up a cone course. There's about a 20-minute instructional time. That we sit the kids down on the sleds. We look for kids ages 9 to 13. We bring them out. We sit them down on a sled. We explain how the sleds work. We explain to steer left, you do this. To steer right, you do that. Most importantly, when you're ready to stop, you need to, you know, put your feet down. It takes about 20 minutes. The kids tend to pick it up pretty quickly. The first run down the hill is, is very basic. Hey, here, stay in the middle. Stay on the double yellow lines. Don't steer. Just see if you can keep it in control. And then over the course of the next hour and a half, we have kids learning how to steer the sled. We end up setting up cone courses uh, with left and right turns. And the kids are going from you know, the top of this hill off of a ramp to gain a little extra speed. Uh, and they end up having a blast. And that's the way I got involved. Um, it's the way 90% of my teammates have gotten involved in the sport. And it's really been the backbone of the organization of USA Luge for almost 25 years. All right. And I believe you were about 10 years old when you tried Luge for the first time. 
you grew up playing baseball, I think basketball, maybe even had a little bit of interest in football. When you were introduced to this at 10 years old, you know, did it just immediately fall in love with it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I remember coming home from school in sixth grade, the first time I'd ever heard the word luge said out loud. I got home from school. My mother saw a flyer at work for this slider search program. And she asked me, I got home from school. She goes, Jason, what, uh, what do you think about going up to Syracuse next weekend and trying luge? <laughs> Being from NEPA, never heard the word before, never seen the sport. My reaction was, Mom, what's luge? Verbatim, my mother's response was, I'm not really sure, but the kid on the poster looked like they were having a blast. <laughs> and that was really all it took for 10-year-old me to say yes. Two weeks later, I was in Syracuse trying to sport on wheels, just as I had described. Uh, I had been invited from that slider search program into our screening camps in Lake Placid, and I tried the sport on ice for the first time in December of 2000, uh, or 99, I think. I remember taking the first run and, and coming up the finish with a huge smile on my face thinking, oh my God, I just found the most fun thing I can ever do. And ever since that first ride, I've been hooked on this sport. I was over 21 years ago now. All right. And did you have the foresight at that time that maybe you could you know, make a, a career out of this, whereas you had a ceiling with baseball, basketball, some of these more conventional sports? Ever since I was a, a young child, I've always wanted to be an Olympian. That's something that's always been at the forefront of my mind. When I was introduced to luge and I found out it was an Olympic sport, I was stoked. And then the fact that I, you know, really enjoyed the sport more than even some of the other kids that were there. Uh, and we all loved it. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's super fun. And I highly suggest if anyone ever gets the opportunity to try the sport. Uh, I know that's not super feasible for a lot of people. It's not, you know, there's only two tracks in the country and even getting on ice is nearly impossible. But if you ever get the chance, it's the most fun you're ever going to have without an engine or brakes. Um, I had no clue, honestly. I was just a young punk kid that really fell in love with a sport that was different. And I've been asked a lot lately about, you know, what I would tell my 10-year-old self. And it's just crazy to think about if I could go back and talk to myself and be like, this is about to be a life-changing moment at 10 years old for you. Stick with it. Even though obviously I didn't have to tell myself to stick with it because I stuck with it. It's kind of cool to think about. What was it about the Olympics that you loved as a child? Was it the, the competition itself or the pageantry, the celebrity? Like what was it that interested you in the Olympics? Uh, for me, it was, and it's always been, and even now it's the same. It's, it's the coming together that the Olympics brings. It's amazing. No matter what walk of life you're from or, you know, what your religious beliefs are or what life experiences you've had, everybody watches the Olympic games. It's, you know, 99% of the world like shuts down, watches the Olympic games. And for something like sport to bring everyone together like that is truly incredible. It always has been incredible to me. And it's, I think that's, you know, that was the first thing I noticed as a kid. And what really made me want to be an Olympian was the fact that it brings so many people together. All it's right. very inclusive. And the entire movement is very inclusive. One of the big events in your life was, I think it might've been seventh or eighth grade where you were on a basketball team from Berwick that was going for a championship or something like this. And you yeah. were torn between either playing for that team or you know, going to, I guess, a loose tryout. Could you walk me through that? And did you realize at the time that that was a really big decision in your life? Uh, I, I remember that. I think it was, uh, that was either seventh or eighth grade and the team was going to playoffs and we had a really good chance of taking the district title or something. And that was right as I started out, I was maybe doing three to four weeks over a winter away, that was, which is not much. I remember that being one of the easiest decisions I ever made. I was a point guard five foot, nothing. Um, my parents aren't very tall. I knew, you know, I loved basketball. Basketball was my first, that was my first sport. I was taught by my grandfather at two and a half, three years old. And it, it is my first love for sure. But I didn't get the opportunity to lose as much as I wanted to it, even from the very beginning, because, you know, you got to get track time and you have to move up in the ranks to get that track time. Priority goes to the Olympic level athletes, the senior level, the junior level, and down and down it goes. And uh, yeah, I remember sitting there and my mom was like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to go to Lake Placid easy. It wasn't seen as a great decision by some people because, you know, they wanted me to play basketball and 
this, you know, Luge could have been gone the next day. Who knows? You can get cut every year from the team, especially when you're young and there's so many people to choose from in the pool. But I still remember that being one of the easiest decisions I ever made as a kid. And now that, you th- now that you've got me thinking about it, yeah, it probably was a pretty pivotal moment for me. But it was a very easy decision to make even at, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. Going three hours each way to where you trained, right? On top of six. them, six hours each way? Six hours, yep. Jeez, plus the monetary sacrifices that I'm sure had to be made. You know, just what kind of a role did your parents, I believe their names are Catherine and Jay, what role did they play and how significant was them getting on board with your idea and your dream? Well, I've had many conversations with my parents over the years and I could never thank them enough for the opportunities that they allowed me to have. As for, you know, the decision to be going for the sport, they were, they were with me 100% from day one. Not just my parents, too. The, really, the entire town of Berwick kind of rallied behind me. We used to send out, you know, letters for fundraising. Uh, we always were able to reach the goal I had for the year to get me to training, pay for the gas to get up there, pay for, uh, you know, a hotel room or something like that if it was needed. My parents used to drive the six hours up, drop me off at the training center, and drive back the same day. I've done that drive a couple times where I've had to go home real quick and come back for the next the next day and make it a a long 13 hour day and only an hour of that spent in Berwick or, you know, doing the same going the other way, coming up here and being back home. It's not easy. My parents used to do that three, four times a winter. Sometimes if they couldn't do it, my aunts and uncles would help out for a day. I remember a time where one of my older cousins drove me up. It takes a village hundred percent. And I can't thank the local community nearly enough for what they've allowed for me. Uh, I hope that they understand that I'm trying to give back to them uh, the best way I can with, you know, trying to inspire the next generation. And even in some cases, taking special interest in some of the young people from Berwick and the surrounding areas and trying to help them achieve what their goals are. But as for my parents, man, it's, it's unbelievable, really. I'm, I'm very lucky to be an only child and the only one they have to focus on because if they, you know, if there was another distraction or, you know, if I had a sibling, not that a sibling would be a distraction, but, a, you know, a blessing, I guess. But uh, I don't think they'd have the time, the energy, the means to have helped me in the very beginning, for sure. Um, when it was a lot harder, it cost a little more money. It's really cool that they've been, you know, supporters, the top supporters since day one. And I've been very lucky to be able to give them a little bit of an insight to what it is that I get to do. They've, you know, they've come and see me race. Uh, all over the world, including both Olympics so far. And I hope that we get to go to Beijing together and get one more wild experience. You know, they've been there with me through the greatest race results I've ever had, the happiest I've ever been in my life to, they were there when I got fourth place at the Olympics. And that was tough. It's still tough. Uh, But that's, you know, fueling the fire for the next time around. Yeah, some of your best results, I guess, have been at the World Cups or World Championships, right? Could you just walk us through some of the career highlights? And um, obviously at the Olympics, you mentioned you came in fourth in, I think, relay, right, in 2018? Yeah, the team event. Yep, and then team in the event. team event, sixth in 2014. But, uh, you know, what are some of the other just big results that you've had in your career? Well, I think the biggest result I've ever had, and it was a full season long result, uh, on the World Cup tour, at every stop, your finish gets you points in the overall point system. It was the year of the 2016-17 World Cup season. It was the pre-Olympic season for Pyeongchang. My teammate Matt and I, Matt Mortensen, uh, we were only in our third year together as a team. And we compete in Luge. You know, teams are built and grow together from young teen years. You know, Matt and I were competing against guys that have been together for some of them 20 years and they have been in every situation together. They know pretty much what the other's thinking before they're thinking it because they've spent all this time on the tracks together, all the times in the hotel rooms together, have all, all this bonding time. Matt and I were very good friends. We still are great, great friends. Uh, I actually officiated his wedding this fall, uh, which was cool for me. But in that season, we were only in our third year together, and we were, uh, I had acquired a new sled. And, you know, learning how to slide on a new sled is a, a – a big experience in itself as well. So not only did we not have a lot of time together prior in comparison to the, the rest of the world, uh, we were also on new equipment, which can be risky. You can go one of two ways, really. You can go 
uh, it can go the right way or the wrong way. And um, I've been in, in projects that have gone both ways. And uh, that one, the sled showed up and immediately Matt and I were comfortable on it. We were faster on it. We had just finished fifth in the world the year before. So we knew we had the capabilities to get ourselves into that elusive top three to be one of the best in the world. And that whole season, we never finished outside the top eight in a world cup. So we were consistent with our new equipment, which was great. And just the second world cup of the season here in Lake Placid home, home track advantage is huge in our sport because not everybody gets a lot of time or a lot of runs on the track. So it's a lot easier to be comfortable in a place that you've been so many times. And I had won a world cup medal in December of 2010. And that was the last time I had been on a podium for doubles luge. Matt had never been on a podium in his career at the senior level. And in just our second race together in December of 2016, we were able to score uh, a world cup silver at home. That was a huge moment for us. That was one of the, you know, that's one of the races I look back on and I'm super proud of, but that was just one stop. And then we kept going and it, it's wild how that season ended up because Germany is a powerhouse in luge. They have been since the late eighties, just dominant, um, especially in doubles discipline. Like right now I am actually very lucky to be able to compete against what is considered the greatest doubles team in the world. Uh, one of the doubles teams, the, the Tobies, they're a German double team, Wendell and Arlt. Last week in a World Cup, they just got tied in the overall victories in history by their teammates. So right now I'm competing against arguably the greatest two sleds to ever do doubles luge. And I, I see that as something that, you know, I'm super proud of. They were competing back then with us. And it came down to the end of the season, actually. Um, they were in one and two in the overall solidified. Nobody was jumping in there. Um, the third spot in the overall going into the second to last week of the World Cup season was myself and Matt. And in fourth, very close fourth, was the third German doubles team who were a bit younger and less experienced. Uh, I think I'm their senior by six or seven years. And so we went into the second to last World Cup in third. And Matt and I crashed on the second run after leading the World Cup after the first run, something that we had never done. I, it was the only run I've ever had in my career, the first run in the Sochi World Cup in that season to have finished in first place, which is to me something I'll never forget. But in the second run, in the final corner, we crashed and crossed the finish lines on our side and finished eighth. So to have a crash and finish eighth, awesome. Or sorry, uh, a crash and finish ninth in that race. Uh, but we fell behind in points by 12. So we're going into the final World Cup, 12 points behind a German sweep of the overall podium. The final race was in Germany. They have four tracks in Germany. We had competed on the three others previously in the season, and the German doubles teams swept the podium in all three of those events already. They hadn't lost a medal at home all season. We get to this World Cup location in Altenburg, Germany on Monday. On Tuesday, Matt's grandmother dies. He's got to make a tough decision. Does he want to stay on tour and compete that weekend and finish out the World Cup season? which if we hadn't competed that weekend, we were so far ahead of fifth, we were getting fourth anyway. It didn't matter. Even if the team in fifth had won the World Cup, they weren't going to get enough points to overtake us in the, in the overall for fourth. So we'd already moved up one from last year. I told Matt, if you want to go home, I get it. It's cool. He made a very tough decision, and he stayed. And he goes, dude, we've been working too hard for this. We have a chance. We're only 12 points behind. I was like, yeah, but I know where we are. I know what country we're in. I know who we're going up against. Like I, it's cool. He still made the decision to stay. Since we had no opportunity to fall back, we looked at that race as a, let's see what we can do. Let's make this sled as risky as possible. So we're in the least amount of control we can have, but it's going to reward us in, in speed if we're able to make it down to the bottom. It's a very big thing in luge. You can, you can set your sled up for safety and control, but you're sacrificing speed or you can set it up for speed, but you're sacrificing a little bit of your safety and control. Training had gone both ways that week for us. We had some good runs. We had some bad runs, but we were still pushing the limits of the sled the best we could. Uh, I remember this race. Well, number one, I just watched this race again last Saturday or on Sunday because I like to remember what each track is like because we are going there uh, pretty soon. But the way it works out in our, in our World Cup points is we had to not only beat that third place overall team, 
we had to beat them by 15 points, which is a big jump if you're not in the top three. 100 place for first points, 85 for second place, 70 for third, and then it only drops to 60 points. So if we got third and they got fourth, they still got us by two. So we had to be in the top three and we had to beat them. First run happens and the way it works out with the start order is there's a Nations Cup qualifier the day before. So 12 teams can qualify for the World Cup. And then there's 12 teams that are already seeded and, and already qualified from previous race results. So we were in that seeded group. And the way the seeded group works is you get a random draw number. We were number 21. The Germans were number 18 for the second place overall team. 23 for the first place overall team. And 24 for the team that we had to beat. The first German team goes, they're second place overall. They hit at the start of the run and completely take themselves out of the race immediately. So right there, we can get the podium. That's a possibility because they've been in the way every time. They kick themselves out. After them is a Latvian team. The Latvian team comes down in first place, heavily ahead of the rest of the field. These guys are three-time Olympic medalists. They competed in Torino, Vancouver, and Sochi up to that point. So they're three-time Olympians. They were in sixth place overall the previous season. We were battling with them all year to get to that point of top five. There's one sled between us. I can't remember who that was, but then we go. And we don't know going down the track if we're ahead or behind the time that's in the lead. We're just having, you know, our run. Hopefully at the end of the day, the clock says you're fastest. We were behind the, the Latvian team for half, like half of one of the splits between sections of the track. And then we were ahead the rest of the time. But at the finish, we were only four one thousandths of a second ahead of them. It's very, very tight racing. We're the only sport in, in the sliding sports that is timed to the thousandth because it's such tight racing. And just to we come remind up, people, how, how short or long are these races typically? Uh, every track is around a mile long. Doubles goes from a little lower down because of the, the weight on the sled and the center of gravity is a little bit higher uh, with two athletes. So we we go from a little bit lower start to keep safety involved, but we still reach speeds. I've been clocked at 88. We're still moving. And every track you know, is a little different in variation of vertical drop. So some tracks have higher speeds than others. It just is what it is. But every track is around a mile long and it takes less than, you know, 50 seconds from top to bottom with no engine. Um, so we come up four thousands ahead. There's a team between us and the number one ranked German team. They come down and blow us away by one point or point one seven five, which is a huge gap over almost two tenths of a second is huge in luge considering we only beat the Latvian team by four thousands. Right. Um, but those guys have been the world cup leaders for six years now. They are some of the best of the best, like I said earlier. Uh, and then comes this, the final sled of the first run is this German team that we are battling with. They got, they came down in second place. They split us, us in the top German team. Uh, they were 0 0.104 ahead of myself and Matt. And we go in between runs. So Matt and I know that right now we're in a podium position as long as we can stay ahead of the Latvians, which for us is huge because he has never medaled in Europe and I haven't medaled in Europe in six years. Definitely not taking first place. Those guys have a huge lead on everybody. And even if they make mistakes, they're going to be faster than everybody. It's, they're at home. So we're sitting there talking to each other between runs in the start house. And it's like, well, hey, man, at least, you know, we're in position to get a medal. So at the end of the day, we can be super proud of that. You know, he's making a huge sacrifice, missing his grandmother's funeral. And he's very, Matt is very, very tight family. Um, all we can do is what what we have control over, take the second run and see where it lands us. We had a great first run. Let's build on that. Uh, let's try and make a podium happen. So we get into the second run and the Latvian team goes before us and they destroyed everybody again. They're well ahead. They built on their lead that they had from the, the next team in line. I think they had almost an exact same run time from their first to second, which is great for us. That means the track held up the, the speed's still going to be there. The opportunity for improvement is there as long as we get keep our stuff together. And I remember sitting at the start handles and Matt and I are getting ready to take the run. And the German team that is in second place comes up next to us because they're next in line to go. And that's how it works. You, you set up next to the team that's going and you get in that track as soon as the team in front of you pulls off. 
and I'm friends with these guys. Like, there's legit maybe 150 people in the world that do this sport at my level. And we all travel the world together. We, we all compete against each other. I've known them for over half my life. So we're all family and friends. Even though I'm competing against them and they're from a different country, you know, we're all very tight-knit community. And I remember sitting there and thinking to myself, well, this is either way, this is, you know, this final run of the year, so let's have some fun. Matt grabs the start handles and I grab the straps that are for me to pull off to, to help us pull in unison. And I look to my left at the two German guys and I smile and wink. And that's it. And I turn back to right in the zone. Matt says, you ready, man? Let's go. Here we go. We pull off. We have another amazing run. Uh, we built a, I believe, a, a quite a large lead on the Latvians. Uh, even with their solid second run, we were able to find even more speed than we did in the first run. Maybe, you know, something to do with how relaxed we were or I don't really know. But we flew on the run and we were very happy. We came off the outrun. We saw the number one, you know, which means we made the podium in Europe. We got back on it, back on another podium. It's a huge, huge step for North Americans to get to a podium in Europe. It's a very European sport. So it's a huge benchmark for us. We know immediately that we're going to go into the summer finishing with a medal result. Great going, confidence builder going into the Olympic season. Um, but we get off the track, the crowd's cheering. We get pushed into the leader box and in front of us is a little television. And Matt and I are super excited already. We're talking about how great the run was. But right as we get there, the German team behind us, 12 points ahead in the overall, ahead of us by over a tenth of a second, they pull off. So Matt and I start to turn our focus to the television. We're watching. And when they show the splits and the times, they show a comparison to the leader on the way down the track. And when they show your time, it's in, it's in green or it's in red. And green means you're ahead and red means you're behind. And sometimes it turns blue, which is super rare. And that means you're tied to a thousandth of a second at any point in the track. So Matt and I are watching and they're, they're green. They're ahead. They pulled a faster start than us. We were not known for being fast at the start. We're known for being fast sliders. They gained a little bit. I think it was a hundredth or two hundredths of us at the start split. And then we're watching them go down and they're having a very clean run, but their time keeps getting smaller. The next split's only eight hundredths. The next split only four hundredths. And the final split, it was 0 0.020 with three curves to go. So that tells me Matt and I are gaining on them. They do have very fast sleds. These guys are great sliders. There is a chance they continue and finish in the green but we're making it super, super close. They come around the final corner. They reach the, the, the final split. Everything's green all the way down. Green, 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 green. And Matt and I are still happy, still excited. They get to the finish line, and it went red. By less than four one-hundredths of a second, it went red. That, mom that moment will live in my mind forever. We, we finally solidified ourselves as one of the best teams to ever compete for the United States when we did that, which is really cool. We won the third place overall Crystal Globe. It was the first Crystal Globe in 14 years brought back to the United States by a doubles team. That whole season, we went through a lot of ups and downs. For it to come down to the final run of the year to stop a German sweep of an overall podium, and we were able to do it that's probably honestly, even if, if I get the chance to go to Beijing and I get an Olympic medal, that race in Altenburg will probably still be, in my opinion, my greatest performance of all time. And I will forever look at it like that because of what it meant, uh, not just to me, but to Matt. When Matt and I teamed up four years prior or three years prior to that, I told him I was going to show him what his potential was because I've seen him slide for years with other teammates and it just, I didn't think it clicked for him. And when we did that, I remember being at the hotel afterwards, you know, still adrenaline rushing, but we sat down and we cracked a beer after a long week. And I said, you know, this is your potential. This is what I wanted to show you. you know, let's go next year. Let's keep this. We had a plan going. Let's keep it going. We can do this. And then, you know, the Olympics fell how they fell, but we were in contention all the way. But when I look back, yeah, the Olympic runs are great. There was, you know, the Olympic relay run I thought was another big moment for Matt and myself, even though we ended up fourth. 
uh, the way it happened, the run we had when the lights were watched, were on and everybody was watching. Um, that might be my favorite single run of my career, depending on what happens in February of 2022. But Altenburg of February 2017 will forever be, I think, my greatest performance. So that ended up being a silver medal there, right? A silver medal in, in the World Cup itself and a bronze in the overall and a, a stop of a German sweep, which was huge. Yeah, huge that's for, pretty awesome. So yeah. you mentioned a couple things in that story that I want to go back to. First being, you mentioned that you, you know, were derailed or that you crashed in the one crash. What is that like? I mean, obviously, I don't think you broke any bones, right? But like how severe could these crashes be in Luge? 90% of them, 99% of them are a little bit of ice burn because, you know, when you're traveling at 70, 80 miles an hour and you fall off the sled and it's, you don't wear much. We're wearing, you know, a, a spandex Lycra suit for aerodynamics and then maybe one base layer underneath. But when, when you're moving that fast, ice feels like concrete. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the time when you, when you see a luge athlete crash, they can get the sled righted, get right back on it and finish the run. It, it's very common that an athlete will crash and finish the run. I'd say 95% of those, are, there's like a 4.9% of crashes where sometimes you don't feel like finishing the run. You just want to stop, get out, uh, get a ride back up, try again because you made a mistake and, you know, you're beating yourself up over it. Sometimes people get knocked out. It does happen. Uh, concussions are, you know, something that we look into as, as athletes, as an organization, International Federation, we pay attention to that. Um, there's very rare cases where people get seriously hurt. Uh, but that, you know, that is a possibility. We are risking our, our physical safety and health uh, every run we take, but we've been doing it. Everyone on, on the World Cup tour has been doing it long enough where we have honed the skills necessary to make it down from every start. Uh, even when we find ourselves in trouble, we have the skills to get ourselves out of trouble. But sometimes we make mistakes, as every human does. When it comes to being a doubles team, is it usually like one big guy, one smaller guy, and you play the role of the smaller guy? Yeah. Uh, there's always, you know, it's an aerodynamic advantage to take a larger athlete and kind of encompass the sled and the, the smaller athlete into one. And then mm -hmm. the, where the taller athlete will lay over top, it's good for airflow that way. There are some doubles teams on the tour that are the same size guys. They make it work for them. I've always found it to be easier when the when the top driver is is a taller athlete and the the back driver is a little bit smaller. Strictly on the way the sleds work and drive, the levers having the long levers up front make for more torque onto the sled and into the ice, and the sled will steer better. But really, I think even there's possibilities that the smaller guy could be on bottom. I just think the sled would steer very slowly and you don't want to be steering slow when you're going fast you want to you know have good control over something while you're moving and you're about five seven 155 pounds on, on a good day yes i am on a good day could you tell just because you spend so much time with your partner in that sled like could you tell if the other guy you know maybe over eight uh, the night before you know that he put on a couple pounds or lost a couple pounds uh not like a pound or two but uh, over the course of a summer, if so my teammate lives and trains out in Salt Lake City with his family. He came back a little bit lighter this year, and I definitely feel the fact that he's lighter up top, which is which is great because it means he's able to move his body better than he was in the previous year, and I think that's really transitioned into our sliding. I've, I've trained with a, a lot of different guys. It's not very common for that to happen, but as a junior, uh, I took runs with a lot of different people just to, to get different feelings and learn you know, as much as I could about my position on the sled. And it changes with each athlete, what they want to do, what they want me to do. It's definitely nice to slide with someone that's got their weight under control for their body type, uh, strictly on the fact that we enter curves that have up to five G-forces. And I'm bearing the brunt of the weight of that athlete mm -hmm. on my chest and stomach. So when you're hitting five Gs with a guy that weighs 200 pounds, that's a quick little thousand pound push, uh, you know, even for a, a couple milliseconds. I can tell when he's gained or lost, I'd say more than 10 pounds. Okay. And you mentioned the aerodynamics and how you were building up, um, you know, for one of the rides where you were sacrificing uh, the safety for the speed. Like, how do you go about doing that? You know, what are you actually doing when you make these strategic calls? 
Okay, so uh, Lushlet is a very difficult system to fully understand. There are some, some basic areas. I'm going to compare bobsled and luge real quick for everybody. So bobsled is the, the vehicle that you drive with your hands in the car, pulling on D-rings. Um, everybody, most people have seen cool runnings so they can understand what a bobsled looks like. Uh, their runners are very round on the bottom. And because of that, they don't dig into the ice very well. So they're kind of riding the top of the ice. And when they turn, it doesn't necessarily react as much as they would like. We compare that to a ball bearing. In luge, our runners are very sharp and they're at a very deep angle into the ice, which allow us to have so much control. Uh, it also allows us to go a little faster because we're having less friction into the ice. But I compare that with a speed skate blade. So we're taking these, these runners that are very sharp and they dig into the ice and we change the angle at which they touch the ice. So I can raise my angle, which gives me more grip into the ice and more steering ability or what Matt and I did for that World Cup in that specific situation is we lowered the angle almost to the point where when we steered, the sled wouldn't go. It takes a lot of confidence to do that, uh, especially at a, at a foreign track, one that we don't have as many runs as the, the rest of the field does, especially even with training weeks in the beginning of the season, a lot of the Europeans travel around to each track and get extra runs. We don't do that. We stay in North America. You know, that's the primary, if we're going to change a setup, that's the number one thing we do to gain speed and lose a little bit of controls to change the angle at which we're into the ice. Um, another do you way do we that, can do it is... Do you do that yourself or is it kind of like in NASCAR where there's a pit crew? Like, how, how do you do that? Uh, we, we are the pit crew in Luge. Yeah, okay. Um, and I, I like that I have control and can understand what I'm doing with my sled. Uh, just because when I'm riding it, I want to know what I'm riding so I know what I should or should not be feeling on the sled. Because I know athletes that don't take any uh, accountability over the setup at which they ride. Maybe they take care of polishing the steels up, the runners themselves, which is a lot of work. But uh, some athletes just try to stay numb to what exactly they're riding. They're like, no, I trust the coach and the coach wants it this way, so I'm going to ride it. That's great. And I trust my coaches too. And I take all of their information and requests and their advice. Um, but at the end of the day, it's myself and my teammate riding the sled. And I think that personally, we should have total control over the equipment that we're riding. Um, and my coaches do like, they appreciate that mind frame as well. I just seem to be at least a little bit ahead of my teammates uh, who are younger. So maybe with experience, they will want to do the same, but I'm just ahead of the, ahead of the game on that frame but there's a few other ways we are able to change the sled and if i went into that we'd be talking for hours about some super nerdy luge specific <laughs> jargon um, but the number one way to gain speed and lose control is to lower the angle of the runner into the ice uh, and that's all that matt and i did that week uh, we didn't change anything else we knew how the sled was going to ride uh, we just wanted to push the limits of control over speed well, I know something that everyone could relate to, everybody would be interested in hearing about, is your favorite experiences at the Olympics off the course, off the track. Some of the people that you met, I know that Sean White is one of them. Uh, this is the winter sport, so you got to consider you know, the athletes that are there. But what are some of your favorite experiences that you've had at the Olympic Games? And I, I just for the record, I think the locations were Pyeongchang in 2018 and... Sochi, Russia in 2014, right? Yep. And I had uh, some great experiences in, at both of those games. Um, lucky for Luge, we are the first six days of, of competition. Uh, you know, we have opening ceremonies the night before the games. And then day one and two is men's singles. Day three and four is the women's competition. Day five is the doubles. And then day six is the team event. And after that, we are no longer competing all of our stress is gone. Yeah, you deal with the results. You have to get through however you have to. But what's really cool about being done early is that we have access to Team USA athlete-only areas of the stands for other events. And we were able to get tickets to go to other events and cheer on our teammates and our, our friends. Um, yes, the Olympic Games is the first time where all of the athletes from an entire delegation come together. But here in Lake Placid at the training center, you know, kind of growing up through the summertime, I've met guys on the ski team, 
people in biathlon, people in cross country skiing, guys in the aerials team. Um, so for me, the coolest experience I've had is going to their events after I'm done and cheering on my friends that I've had for years. Um, Sochi, especially, I, I really enjoyed the aerial skiing event. Those guys and girls are nuts. You know, they go three to four stories in the air doing triple backflips with five spins, landing on skis. I'm saying it they're nuts. I'm look, that, it makes I'm Luge look really safe. at 90 miles an hour with just a helmet on my head. <laughs> exactly. Um, but at least I'm grounded, you know, most of the time. They are mm -hmm. incredible athletes, uh, really good friends of mine. The Sochi Games, I had Matt had scored tickets. This is right before Matt and I jumped on the sled together. This was, that was our last competition off the sled together was Sochi. And then three days later, we went to a hockey game, Team USA versus Russia. And if you remember that game, it was tied after uh, regulation. It went to eight rounds of shootouts. Mm -hmm. And Matt and I scored eighth row tickets right behind the Russian goalie. So we were watching the shootout from right there. Uh, that was super cool for me, enjoying the Team USA house, which is a, a location that Team USA rents out a building and it's all for the athletes to go and, and meet each other uh, along with previous Olympians that have access, sponsors from Team USA come in. Uh, we were there when Vladimir Putin joined. I was there to, to see Vladimir Putin walk into to, uh, the Team USA house in Sochi, which was really cool for me, uh, seeing a, a world leader from another country. Uh, that was before I had gone to the White House for the Team USA event there. Fast forward four years in Pyeongchang. You know, I got to go to the women's gold medal hockey game. We were at the women's gold medal game in Sochi as well when the girls lost and got their third consecutive silver medal, which, you know, I know is a bummer to those women, but damn, a silver medal. Uh, but I got, you know, we were there cheering them on in 2014, and I got to go to the, again to the gold medal game, which was a rematch between USA and Canada in Pyeongchang and watch our women come out on top. That was really cool to be there for a part of history for that. I was also in the stands for the curling finals. Uh, I've actually become really good friends with, with Matthew Hamilton of the curling team. And everybody knows Matt is the guy with the red hat and the mustache from the finals. Um, but I was there to watch him make history and, and, and Schuster and Tyler George and, and the, the rest of the guys on that team. That was really cool. Just getting to go and, and experience other athletes sports live the best of the best get the privilege of watching that is really cool all right and do you ever consider because these are all once in a lifetime experiences i know that you're grateful that luge opened all these doors for you but you know when it is time to make that next step and and everything have you been able to study on the side or like where and what do you picture you would have been doing throughout your 20s and early 30s if this sport never came into your life? Well, first off, I'll answer about the sport never coming into my life. Uh, I would hope that if I hadn't found luge, I would have found golf younger. Golf is one of my favorite things to do outside of, of luge. Um, and they have, in my opinion, they have a lot of relations between the two, especially mentally. But I would have hoped that I would have found golf at a younger age, maybe played high school golf a little bit. Um, and try to pursue a career in that, uh, in that genre, I guess. I think I definitely would have, I've, I've gone and taken some online courses through DeVry University, their sponsor of Team USA. So I've been lucky enough to continue learning, but I know that now, right now I'm setting myself up. I've spoken with our organization with USA Luge. I've spoken with the administrative staff. I've spoken with our head coach multiple times. Um, I would find it a waste of my experiences in this sport, if I didn't coach at least for a little bit when I'm done to try and pass on as much knowledge as I can to this next generation of athletes, because number one, I've been lucky enough to be involved in the sport this long. I've been lucky enough to be able to compete at the national team with the senior level team for over a decade. I know all these tracks. I know every corner I've been in trouble in every single one of them. I've also had good runs through every single one of them. They may happen at totally different times in my career, but I know what it's supposed to feel like everywhere. I know what it should look like. I've made it very public knowledge within the organization that I would like to stick around and coach when I'm done. Um, they're very into the idea of me doing that. The head coach, our new head coach this season has really taken me under his wing and taught me a lot more about in-depth building of sleds. 
which I think not only will help me in the future, but will translate into, you know, immediately what I'm feeling, what I, what I can do to make a better sled for what we're riding now. Uh, it just gives me a better opportunity to give more input on what we're feeling going down the track and what we should be feeling or maybe want to be feeling with the equipment moving forward. I've made it pretty much a mission for the last decade to bring doubles luge back to where it was in the late nineties and early two thousands with getting, you know, silver and bronze in both of those Olympics, having the depth in the organization. And right now I'm trying to, or I'm starting to see a little bit of the fruit of that labor because we have last week, six brand new doubles teams at our junior level, just starting out and to see, you know, Right now, there is a decade gap between myself and my closest age teammates. This will be their first year full-time at the senior level. And from them down, it's, there's another gap. And that's not going to build the, the legacy that I want to leave. So that job's not done either. And I think for me, sticking around and, and coaching, I hope, will help build that up to where at least I would like it to be if I ever do move on from the sport in any capacity. I really can't see my life without it at this point. I will always have some sort of foot in the door in, in some way. All right, Jason. Well, just a few more minutes here. I know that you've described luge as being like 90% mental. And so, you know, briefly, what would you just say is the advice that you would give to someone trying to become an Olympic luge athlete, if not just a great athlete, period, you know, some lessons that translate to any sport? Um, I, I think outside of any sport, I think, you know, everybody can use the, the ability to adapt, especially right now with what's going on in the world and things keep changing hourly. You know, it's always great to have a plan. And I go into every day with a plan, every training session with a plan, every run that we take down the track with a plan. It never goes according to plan. There's always a curveball. It doesn't matter if it's an early entrance into a corner a missed bus on a travel day, the gyms, you're locked out of the gym for a weight room session. You need to be able to adapt uh, and make the most out of any situation that, that you're in. And that's, you know, even people missing the bus going to work, figure out a way. We all need to be able to adapt. Uh, and that's the, the biggest lesson that I've learned in the sport, especially at the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games is one of the biggest planned events, I think, probably in the world. And there's always buses that aren't there when they're supposed to be and transportation is not there or the tickets are missing. You need to be able to stay calm in every moment, figure out the best plan for yourself and move forward. And I think and that's great advice for anybody. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned before that 10 year old, you would be very impressed by what you've become of yourself. Do you find that other people, you know, from the outside are just as impressed with, you know, Hey, Jason Turdman, uh, two-time Olympic athlete. Nice to meet you because I know that I, you know, I think that it's very cool. Do you find like uh, your friends when they introduce you to somebody new that they're the one bringing it up? Oh, absolutely. Every time. Um, <laughs> and there's often times where I'm like, Hey guys, just, I'm just chasing. Like, <laughs> let's keep that out. Let's I, I, for me, I've always said we're normal people. We just happen to do something totally different and we've got the dedication to get to where we are. That's really in my opinion, what separates me from the guy walking down the street as well. I was introduced to the sport at this age. I learned it. I love it. I stuck with it. Maybe he didn't get the opportunity or she even, but yeah, it's interesting when my friends are like, Oh, yeah, this is my buddy, Olympian Jason tournament. I'm like, guys, come on. Now they already have an opinion <laughs> of who I am. They don't know me. Mm -hmm. um, I do find that sometimes people are, you know, a little intimidated to talk to me, which I think is hilarious because like I said, we're just normal people that happen to do something different. Uh, but it never, it never really gets old. I, I definitely, I enjoy hearing that word because it validates all the hard work I've done. Um, but just Jason. <laughs> all right, Jason. And the last question, something I ask everybody who comes on here because it is NEPA sports stories, you know, Northeast Pennsylvania is such a big part of this podcast and big part of your life. How would you describe the role, even though you did your training in Lake Placid and everything, how would you describe the role that Northeast Pennsylvania played in you becoming the athlete that you are? NEPA has been one of the greatest support systems I could ever ask for. Uh, you know, it gets really lonely being on the road five and a half, six months a year, living out of a suitcase, 
not just monetarily, but I've gotten a lot of, you know, messages through the years from different people from around the area, you know, congratulating me on a good race or just reaching out to say hello. Um, some kids reaching out say, Hey, when are you back in town? Can I grab an autograph? Something like that. It's just even the messages are more than I could ask for. And I don't get that from everywhere. I get that from NEPA. Every time I come home, I see people in the streets. They're always, how's it going? How's sliding? What's, what's next for you? And just to have that, you know, knowing that that's there for me and, and that people do care, it's the world. All right, Jason. Well, thank you very much for being so generous with your time and sharing, you know, some of uh, your career. I think that anybody who listens to this will certainly come away with a much better understanding of who Jason Turdeman, the Olympian, really is. So thanks again. Uh, and hopefully we'll be talking to you maybe when you're getting ready for the next Olympics in 2022. Fingers crossed. I'm hoping they happen in 2022. We'll see what happens with Tokyo first. All right, Jason. Well, thanks again. And hey, Take care. Be well. Thanks, Matt. Great for Thanks for having me again. All right, everyone. That's the podcast. My sincere thanks once again to Jason Turdeman. If you enjoyed the interview, please subscribe to NEPA Sports Stories wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please consider taking a few seconds to leave a rating, preferably five stars if you think I earned it, or a review. This is the last interview episode of NEPA Sports Stories for 2020, but time permitting, maybe I'll have a year-in-review type of episode, so stay tuned for that, and thanks again for listening.